Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace LinkedIn. The Gray Center recently invited a group of administrative law scholars to contribute to a symposium about the rule of law in the administrative state. That symposium is forthcoming in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty. In February, we traveled to NYU's campus to talk about the essays ahead of their publication. This episode of Gray Matters is the final part of a three-part series featuring panel discussions about the themes from the symposium. In this episode, Naomi Rao, judge on the D.C. Circuit and founder of the Gray Center, gives keynote remarks about the tendency of courts to look at trade-offs between the executive and judicial branches and largely ignore Congress in separation of powers cases. She titled her remarks, The Missing Congress. Please enjoy this final episode from our Rule of Law Symposium event. Thank you all for for coming. Um, This has been a wonderful, very passionate symposium. Uh, At least the last two panels have been. Uh, I very much appreciate this and all of our authors' insights are so valuable. Um, Now we're gonna get two more very valuable insights. Um, from an introduction from Professor Epstein and a keynote speech by Judge Rao. Um, Without further ado, Professor Epstein, who needs no introduction, really. Um, My very great pleasure to introduce my good friend and longtime companion, Naomi Rao. Um, there's a formal biography about her that is out there, uh, which shows a relentless career of distinction, uh, starting at the University of Chicago. Uh, but um, our association dates back four and before that. The first time I had actually heard seriously about Naomi was when she monitored my daughter uh, working at the Institute for Justice in the summer of 1997 and led her down the path which had a great deal of influence on her future career. And one of the things that I prize enormously in anybody and everybody whom I see is whether or not they are very good at mentoring the people who are beneath them uh, to make sure that they can realize their potentials. At the same time, she was the president of the Federalist Society, and she organized the National Convention, and we worked very closely on that situation, and it was a triumph of organization, balance, and good judgment and tears. So that, too, was something that happened. Um, I've known her in so many personal ways and never have failed to see her bring out the best in other people. Her sort of consistent kindness, generosity is something that is always there. Um, I've been fortunate enough to supply her with a fair number of clerks. Others, of course, have joined in. And, of course, you always get back feedback from both sides. And she is always gracious to the clerks, and the clerks are ecstatic about the way in which she starts to treat them. And these are the things, I think, in a contentious world or the kind of Aristotelian virtues that we really have to praise. Now, it comes also to the question about public life. It's a deep, dark secret that she and I are both closet liberals. It's such a deep, dark secret that nobody knows that it's (laughs) been said. 
But one of the things about Naomi, which I have a great deal pride about, is she does not run from her political convictions uh, when she talks either in connection uh, with a judicial opinion. She's not as though she's biased, she's extremely careful, uh, but her intellectual presuppositions always come through in the way in which she starts to deal with things, most notably the suspicion that she has, which I certainly shared, uh, about suspicion about administrative expertise on the one hand, in part because she was the head of Barbara, and part because of her stuff, and also because of the general philosophical training uh, that when you start looking at government, it is still a wise assumption today to realize that all serious examination of public actions ought to begin under a presumption of error, uh, which means that you have to constantly scrupulize and analyze the way in which people work. Now, I have no idea what she's going to speak about tonight. It's a bait mysterious topic, but I do know this, that anything that she is going to say is going to be worth hearing because she is somebody who has a very powerful dual role today. She is both a distinguished appellate court judge on one of the most important country courts in the country. She's also a public intellectual whose work, I think, carries influence and power outside of the judicial forum. And her speaking here today before this small and highly select group, I think, is evidence about the way in which she approaches that second cast. So it's a great pleasure to welcome her to the podium. Um, I've been a friend of hers for a long time, and I'm very proud of the association. And so please, Naomi, come up. Judge Rao, we welcome you. Can you all hear me? Okay, great. Um, so first of all, thanks so much to the Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State for hosting this. It is a center near and dear to my heart, and to Adam for putting this on. Um, thanks to all the students here at NYU and the Journal of Law and um, Law and Liberty for organizing all the logistics of this. I know that is not an easy thing to do, so so great job. And you know, special thanks to Richard Epstein for that really kind introduction. He has been a friend and mentor since I was in law school, and. Um, you know, on this topic of the rule of law, it's hard to imagine anyone who has written more about more areas of law than Richard Epstein. And understanding the law, of course, is one of the first, um, one, you know, is essential to living under a rule of law or through law or by law. So, um, so thank you for that, for that great introduction. Okay, so, so some of the things that we've been talking about in the last couple of panels are, are how many administrative law doctrines are under reconsideration at the Supreme Court and, and also perhaps more importantly in the legal academy. And so this evening I thought I would explore a theme that I think runs through this reconsideration, a theme that I'm calling the missing Congress. So what do I mean by this, the missing Congress? Um, well, on key issues of administrative law and separation of powers, courts often ignore Congress. Many administrative law decisions focus on the trade-offs between the executive and the judiciary. They carefully examine the limits and the powers of Article II and Article III. Yet often absent from the analysis is a thorough understanding of the Article I legislative power and its role in creating and checking the administrative state. Now I think this is a problem because the administrative state is of course a part of the federal government and the Constitution vests the powers of the federal government in three distinct departments, not just two and, well, certainly not four. So understanding the separation of powers in the administrative state requires considering all three branches of our government. 
Focusing only on the executives and the courts will inevitably distort decision-making and skew judicial doctrines away from the proper allocation of constitutional powers. So I understand that this topic is fast and the time before dinner is short, so I'm going to try not to be very long and I'm gonna focus on a few points. So first I'll offer a few thoughts on why Congress has gone missing in judicial doctrines. And then second, I'll provide a few examples of what I mean by the missing Congress and how it's distorted administrative law decisions. And finally, I'll share a few preliminary thoughts about what courts might do to bring Congress back. So why has Congress gone missing? Well, when thinking about the Constitution structure of separated powers, everyone agrees, at least in theory, that there must be an appropriate balance between the legislative, executive, and judicial powers. So, so really there is a question, why has Congress gone missing from so many important judicial doctrines? Why is there so little consideration of what properly falls within the legislative power? So let me suggest a few possibilities. First, in the New Deal era, the Supreme Court largely abandoned enforcement of the non-delegation principle. The question, what is the proper content and scope of the legislative power, is a question that is most likely to be answered when considering if legislative power was improperly delegated. Knowing whether Congress has delegated legislative power to the executive requires knowing what the legislative power is. With non-delegation challenges effectively off the table, courts rarely have a reason to articulate the meaning of the legislative power as such. Now courts do regularly assess whether Congress has acted within one of its enumerated constitutional powers, but the meaning of the legislative power is not coextensive with the enumerated powers. For instance, a Commerce Clause challenge requires a court to consider whether Congress has in fact regulated interstate commerce. But this inquiry does not require unpacking the meaning of the legislative power itself. Another reason Congress is missing relates to the type of administrative challenges that courts usually hear. Courts regularly analyze what properly belongs to courts and what properly belongs to agencies under the Administrative Procedures Act and the Constitution. Such decisions involve a careful consideration of the executive and judicial powers. For example, what standard of review should a court apply when reviewing agency decisions? Should the standards be different for legal determinations than for discretionary policy choices? To what extent should courts defer to agency interpretations? What jurisdictional limits are relevant? In answering these questions, the Supreme Court and the DC Circuit have, since the 70s, oscillated between robust judicial review and deference to agencies. So there are a number of reasons here, but, but administrative law often leaves Congress on the sidelines. And I think this neglect has distorted our understanding of the separation of powers in the administrative state. So while that's the case, I do take it as good news that the Supreme Court and other courts, and certainly many in the academy, are rethinking how power is allocated in the administrative state. The missing Congress is a theme running through this reconsideration. One way to diagnose the limitations of the old doctrines is to see where courts have ignored or misunderstood legislative power. Likewise, one way to re reset administrative law doctrines is to restore the legislative power and the essential role of Congress. So let's consider a few examples. 
So we will begin, where I always like to begin, with the non-delegation doctrine. Sorry, Sally. <laughs> um, so the lax non-delegation doctrine is, is really certainly the foremost example of where Congress and the legislative power is missing. It should be familiar ground that Article I of the Constitution vests all legislative power in Congress. And that vesting means that there can be no delegation or divesting of legislative power to the executive or to the courts. This basic principle is parroted in all non-delegation cases. Right? So even when the Supreme Court permits wide open delegations of lawmaking power to the executive, it recognizes the fundamental rule that there can be no delegation of legislative power. So the rule is obviously correct, but it's had little purchase in part because there's no corresponding concept of what the legislative power is or why this power is vested exclusively in Congress. For nearly a century, the intelligible principle, intelligible principle test has been the benchmark for whether there's been an improper delegation. But the intelligible principle test has numerous infirmities not least of which is that this loose doctrine has allowed for a massive and wholesale delegation of regulatory power to the executive, power to reshape the economic, social, and personal choices of Americans. So of course that is a problem. But there's also a fundamental conceptual problem, or at least one. Um, the intelligible principle test does not require courts to evaluate what type of power is legislative and therefore cannot be delegated or divested from Congress. Rather, the test focuses on a kind of practical question. Something like, did Congress say enough so that an agency can fill in the details? Whether there's an intelligible principle tells us very little about the dividing line between legislative and executive power. So one problem with the non-delegation line of cases is glossing over Congress's legislative power, and one solution is carefully considering the content and scope of that power. So Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch have explicitly called for abandoning the old test. And in doing so, they have looked to identify the original meaning of the legislative power. Justice Thomas has proposed, for instance, that legislative power means formulating generally applicable rules of private conduct. And Justice Gorsuch has said it is the power to prescribe the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be regulated. The boundaries of the legislative power become clearer also by contrast to the executive power, which often involves fact-finding or the enforcement and application of a rule. There's already been a lot of talk um, today about West Virginia v. EPA. And there, the Supreme Court obviously reiterated and further fleshed out the so-called major questions doctrine. Agencies cannot decide major questions without an affirmative and clear grant of authority from Congress. This approach may be a step in the direction of thinking about the legislative power, even if it's only a partial step with respect to non-delegation principles. And it is perhaps unsurprising that the court has not coalesced around a, a fixed meaning of the legislative power. Like the executive power and the judicial power, its meaning may well remain contested in particular cases. As James Madison acknowledged, discerning the boundaries between the legislative, executive, and judicial powers is enough to puzzle the greatest adepts in political science. Nonetheless, the court has at least started asking the right question about what is properly within the legislative power that is vested exclusively with Congress. 
another area in which Congress is missing is the deference that courts give to agencies. Because the non-delegation principle has largely operated in judicial decisions as a slogan rather than a constraint, courts often gloss over the meaning of legislative power and have instead created an elaborate matrix of deference doctrines. I think, um, I think the fundamental zeitgeist of, of deference is ultimately an acceptance that far-reaching regulation of our economy and social life may be accomplished by the executive rather than by Congress. And so deference doctrines raise a range of constitutional concerns, including, of course, that deference to agencies abdicates the judicial duty to say what the law is. But another problem with deference is that it poses a binary choice should a regulatory decision may be made by agencies or by courts? And in answering this question, courts are rightly mindful of the judiciary's lack of democratic accountability and expertise. Chevron deference is alive and well, at least um, with some lower court judges. Um, and, <clears throat> and you know, the reasoning behind that, you know, that are really that agencies are more democratically accountable and have greater expertise. And since courts have neither of these advantages, they should not be administering the government from the bench. But of course, some administrative actions cannot be made by agencies or by courts. Rather, they instead require some further grant of authority from Congress. Yet the deference doctrines take little account of the legislative power. To the extent Congress makes an appearance in the deference framework, it's not to consider the nature of legislative power, but instead to take a guess at legislative intent. So for instance, when a statute is silent or ambiguous, courts assume that Congress intended to confer regulatory authority on the executive branch. Unsure of what Congress actually did, if it in fact did anything on the particular question, the courts will sometimes attribute what seems like a reasonable intention or purpose. Such legislative intent is largely recognized as a fiction, but it's often the touchstone of administrative law cases like Chevron, Meade, City of Arlington, and Kaiser. But I hope it's obvious that legislative intent is not the same thing as the legislative power. Rather, intent is a heuristic for courts to explain why they are allocating authority to the executive rather than to the courts. But when a statute is entirely silent about a particular question, there's arguably, no, arguably been no authority given to courts or to agencies. When Congress has said nothing, that silence doesn't create authority for executive branch agencies to act. In effect, the deference doctrines allow courts to claim a kind of modesty while transferring power to agencies. So Congress is missing in deference doctrines, and bringing in the legislative power, thinking about the legislative power, would eliminate the false dichotomy between courts and agencies. It would help to restore courts to their proper role and to ensure that agencies exercise executive and not legislative power. So in addition to non-delegation and deference, there are a number of other examples, I think, of where Congress has gone missing. And so I'll just mention a few, a few of them. So consider standing. So standing is emphatically about separation of powers. Much of the Lujan framework that was set forth by Justice Scalia focuses on the trade-offs between Article Three and Article Two. And recently, the Supreme Court um, relied on this framework in TransUnion versus Ramirez. 
Writing for the majority, Justice Kavanaugh considered what type of injury is sufficient for Article III jurisdiction. He explained that even when Congress enacts legal restrictions and causes of action, that may not be sufficient because an injury in law is not an injury in fact. This traditional Lujan framework may well leave Congress behind. In TransUnion, Justice Thomas dissented and explained that Congress may create new rights and that the violation of those rights can give rise to a private injury that may be vindicated in the federal courts. He maintained that an injury in law to a private right is enough to create an Article III case or controversy. Justice Thomas observed that in the name of protecting the separation of powers, this court has relieved the legislature of its power to create and define rights. The traditional standing inquiry focuses on the trade-offs between Article III and Article II, but identifying the proper jurisdiction of the federal courts also requires considering the scope and limits of the Article I legislative power. Congress is also missing in some debates about technical administrative law doctrines, and here I'll be very brief. Um, but you know, in Vermont Yankee, the Supreme Court said courts cannot impose limits on agencies that go beyond what Congress required. Nonetheless, courts often do just that. For instance, now we're really getting in the weeds, consider judicially created issue exhaustion. Congress sometimes requires parties to exhaust issues before agencies, but sometimes it does not. Can courts impose exhaustion requirements when Congress has been silent? Um, my circuit, the DC circuit, often requires just this kind of judicial exhaustion requirement. And the result is that individuals who are alleging private legal harms at the hands of an administrative agency are often barred from raising their claims in court. So these are just some examples of how Congress is absent and the legislative power is unexamined in administrative law. And this, this, this absence of Congress has distorted many administrative law doctrines. But the missing Congress has serious consequences for our constitutional form of government. Administrative agencies exercise expansive power over nearly every aspect of American life. They do so in a way that is deeply in tension with the Constitution. And this exercise of administrative power undermines the individual liberty at the heart of our constitutional system of government. Prohibiting agencies from exercising legislative power is perhaps the paramount way to restore the rule of law in the administrative state. But enforcing that limit requires understanding the essential substance of the legislative power. So, so what can be done? Well, maybe here as another context, admitting we have a problem is the first step to recovery. Challenges to administrative overreach cannot be resolved by considering only the executive and judicial powers. We must identify the proper allocation of power across all three branches of the federal government. Bringing Congress back requires identifying the meaning of the Article I legislative power. As Justice Thomas has noted in the non-delegation context, courts must first classify the type of power exercised by an agency to ensure that it exercises only executive power. And in drawing a line between executive and legislative power, we must keep in mind why the legislative power was vested exclusively in Congress. Part of that exclusive vesting is due to the fact that Congress is a collective legislative body that represents the people through democratic elections. 
Congress is, is set up to enact laws for the common good, furthering Republican values through deliberation and negotiation. Importantly, regulation by a narrow band of agency experts cannot stand in for congressional decision making. Many of the justifications for the administrative state depend on the premise that legislation and regulation are interchangeable, that either Congress or the executive may impose generally applicable rules governing private conduct. But that premise, of course, does not fit with the Constitution. In response, many modern administrative law scholars attempt to replace the Constitution with so-called constitutional values. The Constitution, however, is not just a con conglomeration of political and social values or some kind of rationality maximizing blueprint. Rather, it is a charter of government that carefully separated and assigned federal powers in order to protect individual liberty. The missing Congress is certainly not the only problem in administrative law, and restoring a proper understanding of the legislative power is not the only cure. Nevertheless, the missing Congress is a consistent theme, a root cause of the erosion of the rule of law in the administrative state. So Congress may be missing, but I think it can be rediscovered, and that would go a long way to restoring the rule of law in the administrative state. Thanks so much. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLawCenter.